The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Many great stories are built around some powerful moment of transformation, you know, when someone is um, changed, perhaps by some radical act of kindness. Uh, One of the great stories of this sort is... Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. If you've ever seen the movie, because let's be honest, none of us have read the book, right? Um, You may remember at the beginning of the story, there's an ex-convict named Jean Valjean, and and this priest gives him a place to stay for the night. And Valjean ends up running off with some silverware from the priest's house. But when the police catch him and bring him back uh, to the priest, the priest then pretends that he had given the silverware to Valjean and says, here, you forgot to take candlesticks I gave you as well. Uh, While the police believe this story and they let him go, and that act of grace by um, the priest radically changes Valjean, who becomes a force for the good. Maybe you can think of a time in your own life where you've been radically changed or reshaped by some act of forgiveness. And yet uh, Valjean can't outrun Javert, Uh, this French detective who knows that Valjean had stolen a little coin uh, from a boy on the street and therefore deserves to go back to uh, prison for life as a repeat offender. So many great stories are about um, the conflict between good and evil, but Les Miserables is about the conflict not between good and evil, but rather between uh, law and grace. Uh, So that French detective, Javert, represents the law, uh, he relentlessly pursues Jean Valjean, but he's, he's really not evil. He's actually right. Uh, Valjean had broken the law and deserved to be imprisoned for life, according to French law. The, the priest, on the other hand, represents grace. And it's that, that act of grace uh, that the priest shows toward a convicted lawbreaker while he was still breaking the law, in fact, in the act, that sets Valjean on, on a whole new trajectory. And it's at that point that Victor Hugo's story makes contact with the story of the Bible. 
In our passage this morning, in the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he reminds them uh, that before Abraham ever obeyed God, while he was still a lawbreaker, like Valjean, God displayed grace to him. So Abraham is mentioned here for the first time in this letter. Uh, He's sort of introduced into the discussion, and and Paul sets him up as a sort of template, like an example of everything that he's said so far in the letter. So look back in your Bibles at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16, uh, Paul sets up this kind of thesis, this big idea that the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone, to the Jew and the Greek. Uh, And then in the rest of chapter 1, he says that this salvation is needed because God's wrath has been revealed against man's unrighteousness. That's verse 18. Then in the rest of chapter 1, he says that that unrighteousness that necessitates God's salvation um, is evident particularly in the sexual perversion and idolatry of the Gentiles. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he turns to the Jews and says that this unrighteousness of man is equally evident in the self-righteousness and snobbery of the Jews. It's like, so wipe that smile off your face, you're in trouble too. And then he, uh, in chapter 3, just kind of lays it all out there and says, look, we're all unrighteous before God. No one seeks God. No one does what is right. And, uh, and, and that brings him up to this point at the end of chapter 3 where he says that the only way to be set right with God, the only way to have access to God, uh, is through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the big point that Paul has been building up to in his, his argument here in the first four chapters. At the end of chapter 3, verse 28, he says, We hold this, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is the fundamental principle of chapters 1 through 4. Paul holds this position. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, for the Jews, this was a new way of looking at things. This is a new way of framing salvation and being part of the people of God. And so Paul now goes to Abraham and says, so how do we fit what we know of Abraham, who's like our forefather, according to the flesh, how do we fit what we know of him into this new way of looking at things? And in this section, Paul uh, raises a bunch of questions and answers them. It's like he's in dialogue with himself. And the topic is the blessing that Abraham received. So you see there in verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? What was gained by Abraham? What was the blessing that he received? And then in verse 9, Paul asks, Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So who else besides Abraham... Uh, gets this blessing. And so those are the two simple questions that we'll try to understand from this part of Paul's letter this morning. What is the blessing and who gets it? What is the blessing and who gets it? So first, what is the blessing? And and first of all, actually, Paul begins by clarifying what it's not, uh, what the blessing is not. He says there in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. The point is, that's not what happened. Uh, Abraham was not justified by works. So, actually, if we go back and read the story of Abraham, Paul says, we find that Scripture says this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, Abraham was justified. He was declared righteous, set right with God, not by trying to make things right with God on account of his own works. Paul illustrates this principle then in verse 4. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you're a hard worker, you do a good job, you get a paycheck, 
And we don't call that paycheck a gift. Uh, your employer owes it to you. It's your due. It's, it's your right. Uh, but that is not what's happening with Abraham. Uh, God wasn't paying Abraham for a job well done. Actually, in, in reading the story of Abraham, we learn that God counted him righteous before he had ever done anything right. So Paul's saying it is not a blessing uh, to be assessed by God on account of our works. That is not a blessing. Some people would boast, perhaps. Others would despair. Abraham might have boasted. Abraham might have thought pretty highly of himself, and, and some of you might be really conscientious. Maybe you want to be a good, decent person, please others. You might be ambitious or really value self-improvement. You might even think it reasonable that God would accept you. But that kind of satisfaction with yourself is really boasting. It's boasting about how well you've done it, keeping the rules, and it's actually really an illusion Uh, You might do really well compared to a very limited set of people, but God's standard, the standard against which we'll all be assessed, uh, is not how well the person next to you is doing. God's standard is perfection from the inside out, never coveting what another person has, uh, never despising where another person fails, never fantasizing after another person's spouse, always loving in every thought, always sacrificing for the good of others, always delighting in God and never in secret sins. And we aren't graded on these things. There is no curve. It's pass or fail. And we all fail God's standard. So it it is not a blessing to be assessed by God then on account of our works. Uh, We don't want God to pay us for how well we've done the job. We don't want to be commission-based with God. That would crush us. Uh, The blessing is not being made right on the basis of our work. So the most righteous person in the room, you know, if we could line up along a spectrum, uh, the most righteous person in the room uh, would be caught in that filter and crushed by God's justice. Okay, so what is the blessing then? It's not being assessed according to our works? Well, look at verse 5. Here's what it is. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the blessing is that we get something we don't deserve. It's not in accordance with our works. This is more like an inheritance than a paycheck. You do nothing to get it. It just drops in your lap. You know, your, your uncle or your mother dies, a paycheck shows up in your mailbox and you, you know, buy a car or whatever you, you want and, and, and you didn't work for it. Uh, it just, it was given to you as a gift. And that's what Paul is talking about here, a reward you didn't earn. Uh, Heaven is like that, more like a son's inheritance than a servant's wages. It's being considered right with God despite having really failed God, truly offended him. And yet, rather than being assessed on the basis of works, Paul says you are set right with God because of faith, specifically the faith that believes that God justifies the ungodly. So let's just think about faith for a second. What is faith? Well, we commonly talk about having faith or being a person of faith. Um, We're usually referring to believing in something that we can't see, believing there's something beyond the material world. So to be a believer usually means something like believing in God. Uh, And if, if you were a secular person, 
In other words, if you, if you don't really feel sure uh, that anything beyond the here and now, this world exists, then, then you would know that, that uh, the big divide between secularism and Christianity is, um, is this idea of belief in the, in the divine, something transcendent. So to be a secular person is to feel reasonably sure, to think it's sensible that there's nothing beyond the natural world. Uh, and faith is the opposite of that. Uh, it's to have a sense or to feel reasonably sure that there is something beyond this, the natural world, that there's a supernatural realm. So the letter of the Hebrews calls faith the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. So to have faith is to believe that the unseen remains rational. Uh, may not be seen, it's rational nonetheless. But there is another sense of faith, uh, which is personal dependence or trust. And not just believing that a transcendent realm exists, but staking your life on it, being personally invested in that, tr- in that belief. It's trusting. It's like seeing a job that's too big for you to do, something only God can do, and you trust him to do it. You know no matter how hard you work, no matter how long you try, you'll never be able to do it. And it's, it's that trusting him to do it that puts a, a person right with God that kind of dependence on him uh, that he honors by setting a person right with him. This is faith, and this is the blessing that faith like this, depending on God, really needing him, is the only thing that's needed. Faith like this makes a person right with God, and that's the blessing then, to be assessed by God not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of faith, belief, or trust. And Paul uses Abraham as an example of all of this. He simply believed God. He believed that God would be true to his word. And God said, that's it. I declare you righteous. And then in verses 6 through 8, Paul brings in a piece of poetry uh, from King David to confirm this point, to confirm that this is the way God works. So remember, Paul has the Jews in mind here. And uh, he's trying to prove this argument that it's, it's always been this way. This has always been the way that God works. People have always been made right with God, not by keeping the rules, but through faith, acknowledging that they need God. And so he brings to the table two of the most prominent men from Israel's national consciousness, Abraham and now David. So there in verse 6, uh, Paul says, Just as David also speaks of this blessing, of God counting righteousness to someone apart from works. So that's the blessing. Some, someone being counted righteous apart from works. And then he, he quotes David from Psalm 32, uh, w- which would have been like a, a song that the Jews sang in the synagogue, would have been very familiar to them. So this is kind of like Paul uh, relating to the Jews. You, you, you know what, what, what David said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Have you ever made a major error and uh, really hurt someone and then hoped that they uh, would not hold that against you? Maybe you you said something horrible or you snapped out of impatience. You felt really bad and ashamed of yourself and you just thought, man, I I really hope they don't hold that against me. I I wish they could just forget I ever said that. That's a blessing. That's what God does for us. Lawless deeds forgiven. Sins covered. Not counted against you. 
Uh, I, I just read it in my daily Bible reading last week uh, from the, the Old Testament prophet Micah. Let's listen to this. He's, he says of God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That stands as God's promise to you today. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. He has cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. And he's cast them there, not like throwing a branch on the water that floats on the surface, but like casting a block of lead into the water that sinks to the bottom, never seen again. Some have asked whether God mentions the sins of the godly on the final day of judgment. Will he bring up my secret faults against me? The Lord has said repeatedly in his word, he will not remember them. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It says that three times. Jeremiah says that. It's repeated twice in Hebrews. I will remember, remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He has said that as a solemn promise to you. Furthermore, Jesus died for those sins. And, and no punishment, however small it may be, even the mere punishment of shame upon remembering these things cannot be further borne or it would undermine the sufficiency of Christ's work in bearing sin's penalty. The Lord has said he will not remember. The Lord has said the penalty has been paid. Therefore, your sins cannot and will not be brought up against you in the future. Your records are marked irretrievable, deleted, trash emptied. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was with someone, and uh, he mentioned that, that he always endeavors to judge people at their best, at their finest, and not at their worst. I like that. It struck me as a, a very charitable way of treating others. You know, wouldn't you want the other people in this room uh, to think of you according to all your best qualities, maybe even better than your best qualities, just your good intentions? You want people to think of you that way, Right? And to overlook the, uh, the, the worst moments or those fl- character flaws. But, but, but God does even better than that. Uh, God has not offered to evaluate you by your best efforts or even by your good intentions. He's better than charitable in his judgment. He is full of absolutely unique grace. A grace that's unique because he has this immense kindness that's willing to forgive but also because he has the necessary authority to forgive and to judge you by an altogether different standard, not on the basis of your works, uh, but rather uh, by the standard of faith. So that's the blessing, being assessed by faith alone and not by works. Now we turn to the second question then, who gets it? Who gets this blessing? So you see there in verse 9, Paul says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. So it's, it's like Paul could hear what's happening in the Jews' hearts. You know, there's this feeling that many American citizens have about those who come to America from another country, perhaps illegally, uh, in, in one way or another. And, and then when there's some mention of amnesty or a path to citizenship or something like this, uh, you know, many American-born citizens, there's this, this feeling that arises. What do you mean? What do you mean? They're illegal. They don't deserve citizenship. Don't worry, I'm not making any kind of comment on political policy here. Just pointing out that before we ever even get to the level of policy, there's a lot of citizens who, though they think to earn their own citizenship, just have this kind of indignant response at that idea. I'm just saying it's that feeling 
that the Jews had about the Gentiles. Uh, The Jews who were circumcised members of God's people felt that way about the Gentiles who were uncircumcised. What do you mean they get the blessing? What do you mean they can be one of God's people? So Paul takes up this question, as controversial then as the citizenship issue is now, who gets this blessing? Specifically, do the uncircumcised Gentiles really get into this blessing? And look at his answer. It's somewhat humorous, actually. He says again in verse 9, For we say that faith, we the Jews, say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Silence. You hear the Jeopardy music playing. You know, he's waiting for the answer. More silence. The fact is kind of sinking in at this point. And so he says, yeah, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Abraham wasn't a Jew either. He was an uncircumcised Canaanite. Now, he was the father of the people who became the Jews, but he himself was from Canaan. He was just, he was just a guy, counted right uh, because he believed God. And then Paul says, and, and only then, after believing God, only then did he receive the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In fact, just to give you kind of a a sense of of the sequence, Abraham believed the promise of God, so that that little quote that Paul sets up about him, he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That happened when Abraham was 76 years old. And then 23 years later, God told him, okay, now as a seal, as kind of a, a covenant marker for you and for all the people of Israel forever, you need to be circumcised. So then, Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old, 23 years after he believed God. And now Paul reminds them of that sequence of events uh, to, to point out to them this obvious reality that had gotten covered over by hundreds of years of Jewish nationalism, that circumcision in particular and, and rule-keeping in general is not the essential thing for being counted one of God's people. After all, Abraham himself was counted as God's man before circumcision. Well, at this point, you can, you can almost see the defeated looks on the Jewish faces. Uh, Paul is, is largely, dramatically reshaping their understanding of what it means to be one of God's people. So back in chapter 2, if you've been um, tracking along through this Roman series, um, you may remember back at the end of chapter 2, Paul said, being a Jew, uh, being one of God's people, being a Jew means being one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not merely by the letter, not merely by keeping the law. You see, the Jews had had constructed their identity, their sense of self-worth and and meaning and significance around being Jewish, around having this sort of privileged access to God on account of their ethnicity. And so then one of the things Paul is teaching them to do here is is he's he's teaching them how to construct a new identity, a sense of of self um, that's 
not connected to uh, their bloodline as, as Jewish, but, but rather connected to the bloodline of Christ. Finding who they are not in the blood of Abraham, but in the blood of Jesus. And, and this was Paul's instruction in part to help get them beyond the, the ethnic tensions that existed in, in the church there in Rome, this Jewish-Gentile tension that existed there. And Paul says, you're, you're finding your identity in the wrong things, in the wrong bloodline. And so he teaches them here to find their identity in, in Jesus Christ. So who, who gets the blessing? Well, the, the answer to that question is that Abraham got the blessing before he was circumcised. And, and before is the key point. Abraham uh, was a template in this regard, which is a reminder then that so, sort of undercuts this concept of Jewish privilege. Uh, but then Paul is clearly going a step further. So continuing in verse 11, Paul says, the purpose for this, um, referring to this, this pattern of, of God uh, setting a person right with himself through faith and not rule keeping. The purpose for this uh, was to make him, Abraham, but it was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So now Paul includes all, whether they're circumcised or not, Paul includes everyone. Um, he says circumcision is not the distinguishing and necessary feature for being part of the people of God. Rather, it's believing. This is what marks out the people of God now, believing, faith in God. So Abraham got the blessing before he was circumcised, and now all who have faith uh, before good works or apart from good works, also get that same blessing of forgiveness and being set right with God. All who have faith, even without uh, good works. And yet, uh, Paul is not being negative about good works. So thinking of circumcision here in verses 11 and 12 is kind of symbolic for, for keeping the law in general. And then even, even more broadly, just rule keeping, following God's commands, being a rule keeper. You know, but then when you, when you put it that way, it kind of seems to put a negative slant on it, doesn't it? Uh, being a rule follower. And I think it's easy to feel like that's what Paul is doing here too. He's being negative or at least downplaying the significance of God's law and keeping his rules. But I don't think that's what Paul meant. Uh, we, we ought to obey God. We are his creation in chapter one and, and then <laughs> continuing the rest of the letter. He, he points out we are God's creation. And we ought to obey him and follow his intention and design for us as our, as our creator. So we, we ought to obey. Paul is not negative about good works and, and rule keeping. He's simply saying that's the second step. Following God's law is the second step. Rule keeping isn't the first thing we need to do. It's a matter of sequence. Faith is our first business, but to believe God. So then good works, you know, the removal of bad habits, cultivation of obedience to all that God has called us to. These things come second, and they're the overflow of faith. So the one who has true or genuine faith doesn't have to ask you, how, how many good works do I need to do to please God, and which ones? But rather, that, that person who has true and genuine faith just finds herself doing the right things before even asking the question, what must be done, or how many must be done, because genuine faith always gives itself away by doing good works. It always 
betrays itself uh, by the works that it produces. So someone might say, I, I knew you were a person of faith. I, I, just, I saw you doing this over here and that over there, and I, I, just, I knew you were a person of faith. And that's, that's the way faith works. So those good works will come, but the source of them is a genuine trust in God. Uh, and that's what comes first. So I wonder which of these two dynamics is dominant in your thinking. You know, when you think about the way that you relate to God, and you just kind of pause and reflect for a moment on the way that your heart and mind interact with God, do you think primarily and first of all about pleasing Him by doing the right things? Or do you think primarily and first of all about depending on Him, needing Him for forgiveness, trusting in Him? Of course, of course both these dynamics ought to be present in us, uh, but if you find that trying to please him by doing the right things dominates your way of thinking about him and relating to him, and that you don't think often of dependence and just your need of him, I don't think you've really understood how to relate to God biblically in the way that he's taught us to. We daily need God. We need his forgiveness because of the reality of our sin. Uh, you can be made right with God and you need to be made right with God. You have a need for some real basis for freedom from guilt. Uh, John Owen points out that, that sin makes us truly guilty. It's a status that we have before God. We are guilty. Um, and that guilt, that position of guilt or status of guilt produces shame, which is this kind of experience of feeling bad about ourselves, feeling bad about who, who we are. So sin produces guilt, which produces shame. And the only way to get rid of shame feeling bad about ourselves, is to get rid of guilt, to actually change that status. But the only way to get rid of guilt, the status of, of transgressor before God, is to get rid of sin. And there are only two ways to get rid of sin. The first is to be perfect from the moment you're born. We've all failed in this. The only other way uh, to get rid of sin is to be forgiven, to have the sins that we've actually committed taken away from us by the only one who can forgive, uh, the only one with the authority to take away sins. Again, in the words of David, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you depend on Jesus for this, if you have a sense in your heart that you need him, that you need this forgiveness, then you will be treated by God as if you're righteous. You see, there, there's one more thing that needs to be said about this, this faith that Paul is talking about here, this, this faith that grabs the blessing of forgiveness. And that is connecting what Paul says here about Abraham uh, with what he had said about Jesus back at the end of chapter 3. So here regarding Abraham, uh, he says that we learn through Abraham's template um, that you're set right with God, you're treated by him as if you've never sinned through faith, believing, trusting. But then we have to ask, faith in what? Trusting and believing what? And to fill in that blank, to answer that question, we have to link back to chapter 3 and what he's just said in verses 23 through 25. 3.23, for all have sinned and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
to be received by faith. And what is it that's to be received by faith in order to be justified by God? Paul is referring to the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is to be received by faith. The blood is a substitute and a cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus is a substitute in that our blood should be shed. We should die for our sins, for our imperfection from the moment of birth, but his blood is our substitute. His blood was shed instead of ours. Every time we take the Lord's Supper here each month, we say to each person who comes forward, Christ's blood shed for you. We could say Christ's blood shed as a substitute for you in your place. And his blood also cleanses. It's not just a substitute. It's, It's a cleansing agent. It brings about true forgiveness. It's actually the blood of Jesus that saves us, not faith. So faith is like the receptive organ that reaches out and grabs onto it, but it's actually the blood of Jesus. It's our trust in Jesus, Jesus that saves us. It's not the amount of faith or even the quality of our faith that saves us, but rather the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I was in Ecuador with a group from this church um, who, you know, if you're hearing this right now, you'll probably vividly remember this experience um, but uh, we, we departed from Ecuador, from Quito. And uh, Quito, the capital city, sits in a, a valley between two parallel mountain ranges. And so as, as the plane takes off, it ascends quickly, of course, but it also banks sharply to the right uh, to avoid those mountain ranges so that you're left in this kind of unnerving suspension of being, you know, kind of almost straight up or so it feels and also kind of hanging to the right. Well, in addition to this, the, the day we left, there was a, a really bad windstorm blowing through the valley. And so as the plane was pointed nearly straight up, hanging to the right, it felt like it, someone had it in its hands and was just shaking it, you know, and it felt like we kept hitting the ground and yanking up, and it, it was very uh, unnerving. And I, I, it's not just me, I promise. Everyone in the plane was very um, unnerved by this experience. There were loud sighs. The guy in front of me just puts his hand up and says, I'm done, I'm done. And uh, it, it, was, it was unnerving. I've had a hard time with airplanes since then, although it's getting better. But imagine two people boarding an airplane. One person maybe has had an experience like this and has no faith uh, or confidence in uh, the plane. The, uh, the other person has great confidence in the plane and the crew. But they both enter the plane, one behind the other in line. They fly to their destination, and they get off the plane safely. The one person has a 100 times more faith than the other person, but they're equally safe. It wasn't the amount or quality of their faith that saved them, but the object of their faith, the plane and the crew, to get them to the destination safely. And so as one author said, saving faith isn't a level of psychological certainty. It's an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. We give ourselves wholly to him because he gave himself wholly for us. Will you give yourself to Jesus like this? By an act of the will, will you cast yourself on him? Depend on him for the forgiveness that we so badly need. Some of you need to stop doubting that he is able. Uh, there, there is nothing you've done that is so bad that he can't look you in the eye without blinking and say, you're forgiven. 
you need to stop doubting that he is able. Others may need to stop doubting that he is truly loving and desires to forgive in this way. Psalm 103 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows your weaknesses and has sympathy on you in the midst of those weaknesses and longs to forgive. Will you give yourself to Jesus? This um, justification by faith alone uh, may be familiar to many of you. You're like, yeah, I get it. That's why I'm Protestant, not Catholic. That's why I'm here, not in Mass this morning. I, this is all very, very straightforward. Um, but I, I'm afraid that although we, we get it up, up here in our minds, that we often lose sight of this in sort of the heart dynamics, um, our, our relationship to God on a, on a daily basis. And I, I want each of us to be convinced each morning so we wake up and, and sort of review the day past and, and look forward to the day ahead, that God assesses you, uh, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of faith. Because striving to please God by doing the right things is exhausting and sad. It's a losing battle, actually. Uh, John Owen said, the law drives men on and sin beats them back. The law drives men on and sin beats them back. The law drives men on, you must obey, you must obey, you must obey. And sin beats them back. You can't obey, you can't obey, you can't obey. It's a losing battle. It's like trying to get somewhere on a treadmill. You cannot do it. But if we wake up each morning and say, my sin is ever before me, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. It's a constant and an unwelcome guest, and I'm sorry My sin is ever before me. But then at the same time, in the next step, you lift your hands to Jesus and say, but thank you for the blood of Christ shed for me, forgiving me, his blood shed for me. Christ's blood shed for you. That skill and and that sequence, I'm a sinner, his blood shed for me. Skill in that sequence makes a person humble and happy. Humble because you know you're a sinner. You know you're broken. You know you you haven't kept the rules and you can't keep the rules. Truly humble and yet truly happy because you face the day forgiven. The worst is true of you and yet the best is to be hoped for because you stand in God's sight forgiven on the basis of faith and not of works. By the grace of God's Spirit, may we have a real sense of these things in our heart, a desire, a a sense of dependence on, on Christ. We'll take a few moments now for silence. I would love it if you just would reflect on these things, God's great kindness to you, not assessing you on the basis of your works, but on the basis of faith in the blood of Jesus. Let's claim that now together.